This is going to be the last time that we are recording in different countries. Me here in Indonesia and you over there in England. Uh, thank goodness. <laughs> yes, that's right. I'm flying back. Hooray! But you're flying out as well. Yeah, I've got to go out because I need to renew my visa. So it's actually worked out quite well. So I fly out to KL and I join you in Jakarta with a few days there and then we come back here and then we put the boat back in the water as soon as humanly possible. Mm. Because I think if we don't, I will just melt away and just be one little tiny drop of sweat if we carry on much longer <laughs> like this. <laughs> so apologies for those watching. Go on. Sorry, I was just going to say before we continue, can I just mention this latest episode that went out uh, last weekend as we're recording it, which is our gateway to Komodo. Uh, first of all, the amount of positive comments we receive from it has been extraordinary. And it, I'll be honest, it didn't surprise me because when I finished the final edit, it's, it's one of those episodes that is up there in my top 10 of all time. I just wow. absolutely loved that episode, even if I say so myself, because I think it just paints a beautiful picture of one of the places we've visited. And um, if you haven't seen it, please do go and see it because it is just spectacular. Do you not agree? I do agree. Um, also, it is exactly how we saw it. So it's not like um, a, a pretty view of it or, or whatever. It's not trying to be anything that isn't. That is what we experienced. It was exactly like that. And it was it was really special. I think you probably tell from uh, where, where we're talking to camera how, you know, we're all full of smiles. Loved it mm. there. I hope we get a chance to go back. And it's, it says gateway to Komodo. We haven't even seen a dragon yet or gone near Komodo Island. So this is just getting there and uh, staying at Labuan Bajo. Yeah, it was great. Absolutely love it. Beautiful. And we've had mm. some really good feedback on the social media as well. Yeah, yeah. OK, so since this is our last weird podcast, uh, yeah. we're going to pick a subject that is, well, nothing like we've done before, I suppose. Uh, you came up with this, so tell us a bit more. Yeah, we've we've talked about, you know, in passing, us having started sailing in 2006, started full-time cruising in 2006, this, that and the other. We've mentioned it here and there. But um, we are actually now entering our 18th year of full-time cruising. And I thought it might be worth looking back at the places we've been, why we chose to cruise where we have cruised in that time, what we've seen, what we've experienced, the highs, the lows maybe, uh, perhaps compare it with our friends and what they've done. So it's really all about the places and where we've sailed in now 17 years and coming into our 18th year. Hello, I'm Liz. And I'm Jamie. Welcome to Follow the Boat, in which we discuss what it's really like to give it all up to live on a boat. And go travelling around the world. We've been doing it since 2006 and we're still at it. Each week we talk about our latest YouTube videos. And about boats, sailing, travel or anything else which floats into our heads. And if you leave a comment we like, we'll give you an answer and a name check. Peace, Peace and, and fair, fair winds. Right, before you go any further, and I know we've had this discussion before, but I think there is some disagreement between you and me on exactly how many years we've been on the boat. I sat down with mum the other day and got out the photo album because that period 
between us meeting each other, deciding to buy a boat, buying a boat, moving on to the boat is a little bit hazy and we do quite often get our years muddled up. And the first thing I should say is, and I know you don't like to be reminded of this, but I actually moved on to the boat the year before you eventually moved on. Um, so I like to consider the beginning of my liverboard career from that point, um, which we should just quickly explain, uh, was six months prior to you coming out because you, bless you, had to serve a six month notice period from your old job. So you came out a little bit later, but mum and I were looking through the photos. It's like, no, we did buy Esper in 2004, not 2005. And it was 2005, I think, that I moved on to the boat. So... Well, but hold your horses, hold your horses. Right. Yes, we bought it. We didn't actually live together full time until I came out with you in 2006, after we'd finished the flat and we've got and we've got our tenants into the flat so i don't think you can count until after then i mean i came out as well and stayed on the boat for a few weeks here and there but obviously you stayed you spent a lot longer on the boat but we didn't really bring all our belongings and call it home until after we'd got the tenants in the flat and we no longer had a home in the uk and then we said right we're off we're out of here and that okay. actually was 2006 so that's <laughs> splitting hairs but yeah we'd, we've had the boats it's for 19 years yeah yeah and and we should also say that there is an even more important anniversary to celebrate this christmas this christmas day and that is it will be two decades exactly that we <laughs> met each other i know i know we met in antigua yeah in 2003 christmas 2003 so it'll be 20 years uh, that Bloody we've known hell. each other. Mm. We've, la we've lasted longer than both my previous marriages. <laughs> I told mum put that together. the other day. She couldn't believe it. Yeah. <laughs> put, put them together. Oh, you and I have been together twice as long. <laughs> oh, well, maybe the answer is not to have a wedding. <laughs> well, yeah, there's a lot to be said for that. So yeah. I guess what we're hoping from this little chat is that we can inspire new people to cruising, um, that it isn't just a holiday, it is a lifestyle, and it's a lifestyle yeah. that we have been living for almost two decades. Yeah. And it's something to be celebrated, I think, the highs and the lows. Yeah, I'm con I'm considering, um, I particularly want to consider the places, uh, because we've, you know, we're always talking about how great it is to be liverboards and, you know, and then we've, we've come up with lots of reasons for this, that and the other, but uh, we don't really cover specifically why we've chosen to go the route that we've gone and why we've taken the length of time that we've taken. And I think we're fairly unique in that. When I look at other sailing channels, uh, sure, there are a few that come up round and through Southeast Asia and out the other side and off they go like they do with the, the rallies. We've been here for 10 years, uh, but that's only half of our sailing. We had a life before we got to Southeast Asia. So we would, it was dictated to us really when we uh, bought the boat in Turkey. So we were right at the far eastern end of the Mediterranean. So that's where we started. So we had options, didn't we? We had options about where to go.
I think also that is worth highlighting, especially for people looking for boats. And we're, this is something we have discussed before. I'm sure we will cover lots of familiar ground in this little discussion. But uh, for those looking to buy a boat, uh, don't put any restrictions on you know, where you're looking. And so the reason why we started in Turkey was simply because that was where our ideal in inverted commas, our ideal boat was. And we That's didn't right. put any of those barriers up to prevent us from looking further afield than the usual places. So uh, that's why we started in Turkey. And I think as people who know our channel know that we actually spent our first three years in Turkey. And of course, what a beautiful cruising ground that was, at, at least back then, no idea what it's like now. Um, but yeah, the question of where to go next, of course, for those who are unfamiliar, it is the, stand, the standard trade routes are go for, are to go from east to west. Uh, it is certainly the easier way, if you're going to circumnavigate, is to go from east to west. But because... Oh, just explain we... why. Go on. To, yeah, just explain why. I mean, it's all to do with the winds, the seasons. Uh, it, it's all dictated by the weather. So if you go east to west, you've got the trade winds, you've got the monsoons, you've got everything going the right way to help you get across the, the big stuff. Uh, and if you're going to go the other way, you're you're sailing uphill quite a lot of the way, and you have to really pick your windows carefully to get across. So that's so you know so there's those two things. And the obvious thing to do when we bought the boat was to was to go through the, the Mediterranean, out the other side, cross the Atlantic and go around the world that way. But then the idea of going around the world, did we want to do that? We discussed that, didn't we? We weren't even sure that's necessarily what we wanted to do. Well, it was when I first started, but uh, quickly, I think because we'd spent three years in Turkey and realised to us at least how important it was to get under the skin of some of the places we were visiting rather than an exercise of box ticking. Uh, uh, we realized that, uh, well, if we've, if we've spent three years in Turkey and then we're gonna go at this pace, we're never gonna get anywhere, which really, let's face it, compared to a lot of cruisers, <laughs> we haven't. Uh, we have just taken our time. But the important thing was that the idea of going west was going into familiar territory because between the two of us, we've covered pretty much most of the European countries. Now I can imagine if we were American or Australian or basically not from Europe, uh, that would have been a much more attractive offer. It would have made more sense to go that way. But because we knew pretty much all of those countries, the idea of actually going east which of course, many people going from east to west would have already done that trip. But to us, this was new uncharted territory to go down the Red Sea. And that was literally our first port of call was Egypt after, after Turkey. So the idea of going in that direction was very appealing. It was far more exotic. It was far more different. Um, I mean, Europe is stunning. You could spend a, your, your whole life in Europe and, and never see it all. The history, the culture, everything there, it's all amazing and it's beautiful. So, yeah, absolutely adore Europe. Uh, and we'd met in the, the Caribbean and both been states and whatnot. So we kind of knew all that. So, yeah, so we did make that decision to go east and it was uh, a very exciting decision and uh, full of trepidation. But we met a few other yachts that wanted to do the same thing. Uh, not many, but there were a few because there are, it's quite a big yachty area, Turkey. And so we banded together and decided to head through the 
Red Sea, as you say, and go to India. So kind of that was the the next major port was India, another place which I love and I was keen to to show you. So, but then of course piracy reared its head, didn't it? That was exciting. Yes, and actually, just before we talk about piracy, the idea of going down the Red Sea filled me with dread because we met so many yachts who had actually come up the Red Sea. And of course, going up the Red Sea is a notoriously difficult passage to make, not least because, of course, you can't uh, go over to the Saudi Peninsula. You have to stick to the East African coast. Uh, and that can make uh, a transit through the Red Sea quite difficult. But we were going the other way, which, as it turned out, uh, is easier to do. Um, but it was around about that time that we were uh, heading into extreme piracy. And in fact, as we were heading down the Red Sea, it was the year that the Chandlers were famously taken, who were taken by Somali pirates and kidnapped for, it was over a year, wasn't it? I think it was 13 months. And that all happened as we were on our passage heading into the same area in which they got kidnapped. So there was a lot of discussion about whether we should actually continue the passage. Yeah, so we decided to go under the auspices of um, the Vasco da Gama rally. It's not really a rally. It's a lovely octogenarian Dutchman who's been up and down that, that through that route a million times. And he said, well, if we all go together, um, I know some good places we can anchor and I'll stay in touch with the, the people that I know along the way, but just be prepared, things may change. So he had some knowledge. It was good to go with someone who had some knowledge and some connections, but they had just set up the MSCHOA, which is the Horn, Horn of Africa uh, military surveillance unit and they'd put in place the corridor through the Red Sea. This was all happening as we were planning and as, as we started. And I think with hindsight, I wouldn't do it because it was, it's difficult to explain exactly how bad it was, but at the time we were very gung-ho and we reckoned we could do it, we reckoned it would be okay and, you know, we could always peel off back, back if we didn't want to. So we set off from, um, from Turkey and first port was Egypt of course, I mean, this was 20, 2009, so it's a long time ago, so things may well have changed. So some of the information we may discuss now may well have changed. I, I don't know what it's like now. I mean, I did read somewhere that somebody um, had, had actually anchored off um, Saudi Arabia, but it was completely out of bounds when we were there. We wouldn't have dreamt of going on that side. Uh, you just couldn't do it. And we went there, there was only one Sudan. It was just Sudan. It was before it, it split into two countries. But it, and it was before the Arab Spring. So there hadn't been any revolutions in North Africa yet or anything like that. So it was all a very different time. So we got, we really got the benefit of seeing some fantastic places in, in Egypt, didn't we? Don't you think it's amazing how places can change? Okay, yeah. it's it is 20 years. I think we forget that it's 20 years. To us, it felt like only yesterday that we were doing that journey. Yes, 14 years. So much has changed in 20 years. Uh, okay, 15 years. Let's not split hairs. I'm saying 20, all right? Uh, <laughs> it's, just, it's just easier for me to compute in my uh, foggy Small early brain. morning brain. Yes, <laughs> having only had one coffee. I haven't quite woken up yet, by the way. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's amazing how many countries have changed during that, that period. And, and not just changed a little. I mean, changed beyond recognition 
from what we understand, at least, because, of course, we haven't been back to these countries, as you say, Sudan has not only split into two countries, but is having a, a, a horrible civil war at the moment. And uh, Aden, which was a port of call, of course, in Yemen, where everyone went to, is now completely off limits to the point where no one goes there anymore. They actually go over to Djibouti on the African coast instead before transiting uh, the Red Sea. So, yeah, it, it, it actually makes me feel a little bit sad that these places have, have changed because they haven't changed for the better of the people there. These places have become far worse places to live. And of course, you know, we made some some acquaintances and even one or two friends during that period and uh, sadly lost touch with them. So, yeah, it, I, I get a, bit, a little bit sad when I think about those places. Um, because, of course, we have such fond, great memories of them. Yeah. So just just quickly to put it in perspective, we uh, our route from Turkey to India was across to Egypt, through the Suez, uh, then uh, through down to southern Egypt and over to Sudan, along the coastline, going down the west side of the Red Sea, Eritrea, uh, another amazing country, and then across the Red Sea at the Bab al-Mandab uh, to Yemen, and and then eventually Oman before we crossed to India. And it was uh, brilliant and exciting to begin with, with the most extraordinary coral I've ever seen anywhere. I will never forget the coral in the Red, in the Red Sea. I'm not talking about Egypt where people die, I'm talking about Sudan and Eritrea where there is nothing, it's not a hotel, it's not a building, there's nothing, it's just acres and miles and miles of coral. There's every kind of fish you can imagine, whales, uh, rays, everything. Every time I put my line out, I caught a mackerel this big, a tuna this big, caught sharks. Uh, we ate so well from the fishing there. I've never been anywhere that had so much life. What do you think? Do you agree? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Sorry, I just went on a tangent in my own head. As soon as you said fishing, I was immediately brought back to that time in Aden when we had the afternoon with a few local dignitaries and we had that Dancing with the Fishermen session, which we've actually got on video, believe it or not. This is one of our earliest videos of our travels of uh, me being a bit of a spoon dancing with some local <laughs> fishermen because they were doing local dancing, traditional dancing to traditional music in their traditional costumes. Um, and, you know, very early on, we were having these cultural experiences, which again, I look on, look back on with great fondness and, and, and sadness. Uh, but yeah, the fishing was, <laughs> it was out of this world, the Red Sea. I mean, the Red Sea, just gen generally, everything about the Red Sea was just incredible. And I would say to people that are transiting it, if you have the time, of course, it is all about your timings, but if you do have the time and you are able to, do take your time going up or down the Red Sea because there are so many beautiful untouched anchorages with some incredible lunar-like landscapes, I'm thinking South Eritrea, which are just beyond anything we'd ever seen before and even since, actually. Just, uh, yeah. it, it was a unique experience and I'm so glad we did that, I really am. Yeah, so the, the plates, the um, Asian and African plates are 
pulling apart and the Red Sea is in the middle. So it's moving all the time and you can see down on the southern end, just as you say, at Eritrea, we were looking south and you just saw a perfect, as uh, Lowe said, Brigitte Bardot shaped mountains that were just brown. They were just brown shale. They were just earth. So brand new, just, just appearing all the time. And it means, of course, that the water uh, down below where it's pulling apart you've got all these thermals coming through and this incredible growth and so it is it is full of life um yeah i could go on about the red sea for the next two hours but we won't bore everybody with that just wanted to let you know that was the first sort of that so that was heading out of turkey now i mean you said we spent three years in turkey we did spend a lot of time sailing in the greek islands and we also went to cyprus as well so you know we did a lot of sailing around that eastern end of of the Med and you really do sail there because the winds in the Mediterranean are fantastic. The, sh the shape of the uh, waves is square so you do bump around quite a bit but the, the sailing is amazing. What about the sailing in the Red Sea? We did have some really good times didn't we? We got some of our fastest speeds there particularly at the yeah. beginning. Yeah so the way the Red Sea works and this is why it can be a problem going up is that the first half of the Red Sea from north to south, you've got the, I presume it's the tail end of the Meltemis, would it be? I don't know if they stretch that far, but anyway, you have northerly winds blowing you southwards. So that first half of the Red Sea, we were getting some incredible speeds, as you say, sailing due south. Um, and then the, the, the winds started abating and uh, we did quite a bit of motoring on the second half of that journey. But also you have to remember that because we were sailing as a unit, uh, we started off with 12 boats, uh, it ended up being 10, I think. Um, we were having to stick together, which meant we couldn't sail even when we wanted to. And there was one day when I think we'd all had we'd had enough of trying to motor in formation and we all peeled, someone got their sails out and then everyone else copied and that was it. We all went from different directions and Lo, the organiser, organiser did his nut. Yeah, he furious. went ballistic at us uh, because we were doing this in actually the most dangerous point that we'd sailed to yet, which was very south of the Red, Red Sea. Yes. So ex just to explain then, so the whole of the, the Red Sea, most of the Red Sea, we just each of us sailed wherever we wanted to. And all we had to do is be in a certain place by a certain time. And it was when we did the crossing of the Bab al that we had to start sailing in formation. And we sailed in a diamond shape. The idea being that, um, you know, like <laughs> animals on the African plain, if you herd together, you've got more of a chance of survival and less likely to be picked off by the bad guys. And there was piracy going on right then. We could hear it on the radio. It was certainly happening. And so we had a whole load of things happening. We had having to sail in formation. Of course, yachts are not designed to do that. So you had to do it all with your engine on. Each skipper is, the, is a skipper and hates being told what to do. So, you know, trying to get... It was like herding cats. And then you've got the anxiety and stress levels ramping right up because we could hear people being attacked on the radios. We had um, military ships around us. We were circled by Canadian, German, Canadian Navy, which was lovely. But there's, you know, there's only so much they could do. They were in touch with us every day and we were, they were giving us bulletins and whatnot. But we got through, but it was very, very hard, hard work, that last bit. Joyous at the beginning of the Red Sea, but that last bit, because of the piracy, was awful, wasn't it? Mm. 
Yes, and then when we got to uh, Amman, eventually, we had to stay in the port for two weeks because of visa. We were applying for our Indian visa. There was some delay, but it was like being in quarantine, wasn't it? And I think at that point, didn't they lock up our booze cupboards? I seem to remember. And everyone was desperate for a drink. And there was a, there's a famous bar in, uh, or even a pub, yeah, in Amman, in the port of... Uh, Salala. Yes. There's a famous bar there where all of the, uh, any naval, uh, uh, Navy will go there. It doesn't matter which country they come from. It's, it's uh, an iconic place. So we were all desperate to get to this bar, but we couldn't because we couldn't leave the compound. My biggest memory is that we had to go to Oman, which we originally weren't going to. We were going to go straight across to India, but we had to go north to Salala because the uh, piracy had ramped up and it was getting more frequent and they were now moving up the northern coast. So it wasn't just that, it wasn't just the Red Sea, they were going up uh, much further north up the coast of Oman. And so we were in touch with the British Navy who had a frigate there at the time in Salala while we, we were there. And they said, don't move, you have to stay here. Do you remember you and I heard an attack on the radio and we told Lo about it, who then spoke to the, uh, the military and they said, yes, there had been an attack that night. It was where we said we thought it was. And it suddenly meant that it was far more dangerous than it had ever been because they now didn't know where the pirates were going to be. So we were locked in for that reason as much as anything and we had to wait really not for permission because you know you can do what you like but we had to wait for the navy to say okay we've cleared and we swept the area go now go 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 and that's what we had to do very exciting looking back on it i don't i can't understand how i was so brave but we did mm. it and we should say that that piracy attack that we heard actually happened further up the coast to where we were going to be sailing to so it wasn't it was it was a relevant attack and I seem to remember as well when eventually we left it was under the darkness of a new moon as well we had to wait for a new moon before we left yeah yes that that crossing across the Arabian Sea was was quite amazing but the the highlight although I should say the low light for me was when one of the boats we were with who was but now at this point out of sight from us the wife radioed through in a complete panic to say that they were being approached by a huge, what looked like a fishing vessel, and had actually taken a detour to follow them. And uh, and I took the call on the VHF radio, and I remember asking her for her coordinates, which she gave me. And when I jotted them down and plotted them, they made no sense whatsoever. Uh, she just got it wrong because she was in a blind panic. And I asked where her husband was, and she said, oh, he's up on deck. He's just keeping an eye on things. And then radio silence. And there was radio silence for about half an hour. And I remember that of all the times of the points uh, during that whole journey, that for me was the most scared I was now because I just, I felt for these guys and I was terrified about what, you know, might have happened. Well, of course, as it turned out, eventually they got back in touch with us. And as it turned out, and this was probably our first experience, many experiences of a genuinely curious fishing boat who had actually had taken a detour to approach them on their sailing boat purely out of curiosity and entertainment. 
Um, <laughs> so fortunately, uh, nothing bad happened at all. And she came back on the radio and kind of apologised. And we said, don't worry, you no, did the I right know. thing. You know, she yeah. did the right thing by radioing through to us. But that half an hour of not hearing from them, having that radio silence just filled me with absolute dread. Yes, it was. It, we we thought they'd been taken. We really did. And then, you know, we were just looking out with saucer eyes at this black sea, wondering what was out there for the rest of us. Um, yeah, it really brought it home to you. But as you say, about the, about the uh, <laughs> really, once you get through the Red Sea, once you're into the Arabian Sea in the Indian Ocean, you're just surrounded by fishing boats all the time. And they will often come up to you and just want to know who you are and what you're doing, where mm. you're going, would you like a fish, mm. what you got, got anything to trade, got any cigarettes, got any sugar, blah, blah, blah. Happens all the time. And uh, we are pretty sure, and in fact the Navy were as well, that so many so-called pirate attacks were just friendly fishermen trying mm. to say hello. Still mm. happens now. If you find this topic interesting and would like to continue the conversation, come and join the Follow the Boat Discord community. Look for the link in the description. It's free. You talked about fishing boats and seeing many, many fishing boats. Where was the one place where we have seen <laughs> the most amount of fishing boats ever in the whole world ever? The entire Western Indian coastline. I have never seen anything, or more importantly, never heard anything like it. Because trying to monitor Channel 16, which is the international uh, hailing channel on a VHF radio uh, was impossible because it's just full of, I assume, drunken fishermen screaming and shouting and singing down the VHF radio. Do you remember? Yes. I think we had to turn it off I do. in the end. We did. I mean, it, uh, it, it, I mean, it started before then, didn't it? It started in the Red Sea. Uh, there were the two famous calls, Mario, Mario. Mario, just constantly on the radio. And the other one, pork control, pork, banana control, banana, banana pork, pork, banana. Banana pork control. <laughs> and there were a few rather sort of racist ones as well. Yeah, and I, yeah. In fact, I, I remember I looked it up and they've, they've these phrases that presumably are shouted through the VHF radio by bored deckhands on commercial ships who've got nothing better to do and they've managed to get hold of a VHF radio. Uh, they've actually got entries in Wikipedia so these right. these phrases on the radio are well are well known are well known. Banana anyway. port control all night long, all night long. Yeah, we turned that we had it's so bad having to turn one six off, and we'd find other channels, secret channels that uh, that we would use to hail each other, and then they'd they'd hear them and they'd get on. And the moment they heard a female voice, well, forget it. It just all hell went loose. So yeah, but I think even if. Uh, we'd actually managed to say anything on one six, and if we'd had any kind of emergency, nothing would have been done because nobody could hear you, and I don't think anyone no. was very interested. No, and of course, the one time we had some interaction with a, a nautical presence by the forces uh, is the famous time we got rammed, and this yeah. was a big wooden fishing skiff just outside India. Yes, that had turned out, and by the way, we should add, this was in international waters. So this was, uh, it was about 30 miles offshore, I think. Coming into uh, but, Mumbai. But the Indian skiff, no, it was further down, Liz. It was much further down. Uh, oh. Because I remember shortly afterwards when we came into Kerala, 
the marina manager was ex-navy and it was the first thing we talked to him about but this wooden fishing skiff had been commandeered by two naval officers who were in uniform and um, well I won't bore you with the story because I think we've talked about this before but they eventually ended up t-boning Esper and just smashing straight into the side of us and it was the one time in my life well one of many times but the time I saw the most amount of red come over my eyes I was apoplectic with anger at their stupidity um, and so anyway my point being this was literally the only time <laughs> that we saw Coast Guard, Navy, you know, uh, port, police, whoever, uh, on the Indian waterways, because the rest of the vessels there are literally just um, fishing boats of varying sizes. As we were coming into Mumbai, there were so many fishing boats that we kept trying to go around them, trying to work out where the nets were, trying to go left, right, left, right. It was like an intricate maze. Uh, eventually, we just said, sod it, we're just going to go over them. And we went over the nets. So we'd work out that, you know, it, they weren't, didn't have the nets right on the surface. Luckily, they were just below the surface. And we've got um, a skeg-hung rudder. So, you know, we're... If we do hit anything, it tends to go under the boat and up out the other side. Uh, but we didn't hit anything. But we, we chose to just go over them because otherwise we'd have been there for days trying to get through them. Well, do you remember as we were coming round uh, from the bottom of the Red Sea up to Aden, uh, one boat in our flotilla was a long keeled boat. And also they, they were on the inside of our formation. So they were closest to shore. And they were catching fishing pots around their rudder. And it happened on a number of occasions, not just once. Um, and to put this in context, you've got 10 or 12 boats going up a coast at night. One of the boats gets a, a line caught around it. So they have to radio through to all of the other boats to stop. So all the other boats are sitting there just bobbing around in the water. We've got no lights, lights on because we're trying not to be seen by pirates. Very good point. Yeah, all lights are off. We're trying to uh, limit radio communication as well. But in order to clear his line from the prop, he has to radio through to another boat, to the one boat that had dive equipment on board. Um, so he had to get his dive equipment ready while a third boat volunteered to drop their dinghy down from their davits in the water in the dark, motor over to the diver on his boat, pick him up, then go over to the boat that had the prop wrapped around it, and he had to clear their prop from the from the rope, all at night, all while everyone else is bobbing around in an area that had the most amount of piracy attacks ever that year, the most amount of piracy attacks. <laughs> um, and that whole process would take an hour or so. Um, and, and this happened on a number of occasions. So you can imagine that all of us were on tenterhooks. Any time we saw a fishing line in the water or a fishing pot, we, we could just imagine this happening to ourselves. And of course, by the time we got to Mumbai, uh, we weren't in formation, so we were effectively on our own. So we, you know, if anything had happened on that side of the Arabian Sea, uh, we were on our own. But uh, we eventually made it to Mumbai, which was a very interesting experience. Oh yes, those are the days, eh? Did you know that liking and subscribing on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts helps us to get noticed? Go on, give us a helping hand.
At this point, we should give a big shout out to our friends, Emma and Katie, who joined us in Mumbai and sailed with us all the way down that West Indian coast, as far as Kerala in the southwest corner. And uh, they were just the best crew to have on board, weren't they? Yeah, really good uh, friends of ours. Uh, I've known uh, Emma a very long time since she was quite a young little designer in the in years gone by. And we've remained great mates for years. And they are both really excellent crew, simply because they will just do everything you ask them to do. They never say never. They've got so much energy and enthusiasm. They really want to help. They really want to learn. They're just the kind of people you want. Um, sometimes you don't really want people who think they know it all. These two had no airs and graces about them. They're just thrilled to be there and thrilled to help. And they were a joy to have on board, to be honest. I would say actually most of the people, in fact, pretty much every person we've had on board, of course, we don't get visitors now we're in Asia, but certainly when we were in Turkey and mum and dad have been out to visit in almost every country that we've stopped off at from Turkey to Egypt to uh, Maldives. Uh, and I think most crew we have on board have been great but yes and don't forget of course that Katie has some sailing background because her father was a keen sailor so uh, she did have some sailing knowledge but like you say you know she was happy to just to muck in which is what you want as crew isn't it? Yeah I mean all I'm saying is that I do hear horror stories from other people who have crew that uh, they just complain about all the time and we had no complaints that was the longest trip we did with with crew and uh, yeah it was good it was really good so we got to uh, Kerala via Goa uh, and then it was an opportunity to put the boat into the marina which was really just a few pontoons at, at the end of a the, uh, on a little island there but it gave you some security and you've got electricity and water and whatnot um, and it gave us a good a good place from where to explore the continent of India. I mean, it's more than a country. It's a massive, massive experience. And we did it for three years, didn't we? Yeah. And we should say there is there aren't too many sailing stories from India because uh, it's not the greatest place to sail a boat. Just simply from a bureaucratic point of view, they make it extremely difficult to uh, transit between ports because effectively every port you go into is like checking into a new country. You have to show all your paperwork. Even the one port that we did go into was a tiny little fishing village. And I remember even there uh, having to do all the paperwork, which takes hours to do. So yeah, it, it's difficult. But at this point, I should point people out to our first and second series of our podcasts, which were all recorded in the field actually started in Turkey and covers our entire trip all the way to India. And then our second series is just all about our travels in India. So if you want some real atmospheric uh, listening material, I can really recommend those. It's really good because the the podcast series we did through the Red Sea has all of that, all of the excitement, but also the stress we went through. Uh, you recorded the uh, ship that be, being taken, you can hear it all, all happening live um, as we recorded out the time. So, so yeah, it's really, really good, interesting series there. So if you want to have something going along in the background while you're doing something else, I really recommend it. In fact, I'd like to listen to it again. Do I want to listen to it again? No, maybe not. I don't, <laughs> I don't want to know about the piracy again. <laughs> so we, yeah, we, we, we spent three years in Turkey traveling around on land. Uh, and really the only Do, you reason mean why India? We, 
You so mean India? You said Turkey. Well, we did spend we did spend three years in Turkey as well. Funny enough, <laughs> yeah. it seems to be three year stints, doesn't it? It does. But, yeah, it does. Um, but the only reason for leaving India was because we needed to haul out. I think if we if there were haul out facilities in India, which there aren't, uh, we would probably still be there. To be honest. It was a real, it was a difficult wrench to go, but we thought this is ridiculous. We can't just keep staying here. We, we need to move on. We need to go and see some new places. Obviously, we need to haul out. I suppose, you know, if we'd pressed it, we could have hauled out because they've got big ships there that haul out and it, it would have been possible. But I can you imagine what, how filthy the, I don't even want to think about it. Uh, <laughs> So, yeah, so we left. We said goodbye to all our lovely, lovely friends and uh, with, the, with a view to going to South Africa. Do you remember? Got all yes. the flags. Via the Maldives, which, of course, actually from South India is not that far at all. Um, and uh, we had some fun and games in the Maldives, didn't we? Uh, there were a, a, f a couple of episodes we had out at sea. And of course, as you say, we were trying to get to South Africa. But unfortunately, um, well, either the southwest monsoon came in early or we left it a little bit too late. But needless to say, when trying to cross the equator uh, to get to the southern Maldivian islands, we got hit by the beginning of the southwest monsoon. And there's a whole story there about how we got lost at sea for 24 hours. We ended up sailing in a circle, being blown off towards Australia, having no control over the direction we were trying to go in, um, and limped back to one of the uh, northern Maldivian islands and decided there and then that we should actually, it would be easier just to head east to the Maldives, uh, to, to uh, Malaysia instead. Yeah, so we, we were heading south, but we, got, we, got knocked, we actually got knocked down. If you remember, it was a knockdown. Uh, mm. Neither of us were fixed, but we managed to hold on. God knows how we did. It was at night. Terrible. Uh, yeah, in fact, we made our way back to Mali, which is the, 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 like the main island in the middle. But terrifying. We don't have any vi videos of it, do we? We wrote it. You wrote it all up in our blog, so you can read all about it there. But that was, uh, that was one hell of an adventure. That was after having hauled out there. Um, and also going through all those atolls and islands from the north all the way all the way through to the middle and then towards the south with very little in the way of navigation. I think that's worth saying. I don't know how much has changed since we were there, but there were very few charts available. Do you remember what there were weren't that reliable um, and weren't very detailed? So didn't you, isn't it really, really, did you, when you start in the Red Sea by... Um, using Google Earth cached images to help with our navigation. You'd already started doing that right back then, hadn't you? Is that right? Yeah, way back then. And of course, this was this was pre-smartphones, really. Yeah. So we had a laptop fixed up with a USB uh, GPS dongle. And that allowed us to actually put our position on Google Earth. But of course, since we were offline most of the time, I was caching Google Earth images. Uh, but when we got to the Maldives, we were actually able to stay online between all of the atolls. So then we were sort of caching Google Earth as we were going. And I have to say, actually, I'm so glad that we were able to do that because there were a couple of occasions where we were able to spot things uh, on, on, on Google that we hadn't seen uh, on charts. So, yeah, yeah. It, was, uh, 
it was a very useful thing to do. But uh, yeah, that was the beginning of new technology, which we now just take for granted today, of course. Absolutely. I mean, it was the real, it was up until then, it was with us, it was all paper charts um, and, and eyeballing. And I do remember <laughs> several times in the Maldives being very close to, to coral. Uh, I would usually steer and you would decide which way we were going to go because I felt more confident just steering and having you telling me where to go. Um, and there was one place where I don't know how I managed not to hit it. Do you remember that bommy? You were up the front. You said, stop, <laughs> shrieked at me, stop. And I just, I don't know how, how, how we didn't hit it. But uh, gosh, really. That was, those are the old days. Yeah, and it wasn't just a bommy, by the way. I think it was where the we were coming up to shallow water and it was graduating to eventually land. Yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, but at least the waters there are beautifully clear. So yes. that was, that we had Visit. that on our side. Yeah. So many occasions when we've come so close to hitting coral. I, I, mean, I, I, I lose count of that, but uh, yeah. So yeah, the Maldives, definitely worth visiting. But of course, at that point, we've decided we were going to head to uh, Malaysia instead. And so this uh, was the hugely eventful uh, Indian Ocean crossing where all kinds of things happened. Of course, the two, the two highlights being on the second day we lost our wind pilot. And we should say, by the way, uh, we'd already lost our autopilot, our electronic autopilot, somewhere down the Red Sea, but we had a wind pilot. So on the day that we left the Maldives, it's literally a straight run to uh, Langkawi in Malaysia, set the wind pilot. And I remember going to bed and then waking up with the boat being blown off course and running up and having a go at you for dicking around with the wind pilot and you said I haven't touched it and went to the back of the boat to find the entire auxiliary rudder had been ripped off somehow um, and so that is the event and we've told this story so many times now the what was it I think it was 12 days of hand steering two hours on two hours off in the southwest monsoon so following four meter swell uh, in pissing rain and squall after squall after squall and it was utterly exhausting and the only highlight of that trip really was when we rescued two turtles we'd um we'd lost the genoa we the furling mechanism had gone completely wrong so we could not get our foresail to work and we had to manhandle it down there's no way we could get it out of it's, it's a massive problem so we were pulling that down i was at the front lashing it because it was too difficult because we, there were too many waves and we were too, moving around far too much to open the hatch and get it downstairs so it's just a matter of lashing it so i was lashing and lashing and lashing out the front you were trying to steer the boat while i was doing that and i heard this little voice from the back of the boat saying i can see two turtles in distress and I remember thinking, fuck the turtles, I'm in distress, I don't care. But of course, you know, I looked up and saw what you were seeing, which was those great massive nets and things and these fins popping out on the top, top of them and then disappearing. And we did the right thing and you were absolutely right, I was wrong, you were absolutely right, we needed to rescue them. And it, we did rescue them, we, you know, long story, but we managed to get them out of the ocean in into the boat, into the cockpit, all tangled up in this net, still alive, but very much the worse for wear. And we cut them away, didn't we? 
and we released them and it sort of it helped us I think didn't it it really did that was a turning point in that journey because mm. as you say I'd forgotten about the the head cell not working so you yeah. can imagine following following seas uh and it was very dark for most of that journey and I've noticed it's now very dark where you are where's where's your yeah. light gone I don't know you've well, gone in the dark um... oh should I put this light on oh that's better Yes, well, it's the, the sun is going down here, but they just disappeared completely, didn't it? That's odd. Anyway, anyone listening doesn't care about that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so, I mean, just, I just can't believe that we did it. You know, we hand steered all the way across. We rescued turtles. We lost the head sail. Uh, we had thunder and lightning all the way, enormous waves. At least they, were, they weren't coming at us. At least they were pushing us. But it's quite hard to steer, you know, because... Uh, that's hard work steering in that and I have to say when we got to Langkawi we had both lost an enormous amount of weight in a very small amount of time because we weren't able to cook or eat so we were <laughs> all we ate was tuna out of cans because we'd just been to the Maldives which is famous for its tuna and we'd stocked up on tuna in can and we just ate, you know we'd open a can wolf it down try and get an hour's sleep while the other one took over and that was it for 12 days it's the hardest thing i've ever done in my life and yeah we we recount this story and of course to non-sailors it's utterly meaningless it just doesn't mean anything <laughs> but other sailors understand that 12 days of two hour watches yeah i, I think my arms were stuck in this position for two weeks once we got to the yeah. Maldives. I'm, I'm raising my hands my arms up with my <laughs> shoulders up because that was the position you're steering in and of course you you're gripping a lot harder than normal because because of those waves and you don't want to go side onto those waves. So, yeah, it was um, that was really, really tough, really tough. But uh, anyway, I was going to say a number of people have said, why don't you heave to? And we could have do done that and we did consider doing it once or twice, but we were just so focused on getting out of there and just getting to the other side that some kind of adrenaline and superhuman determination takes over and you just get on and you just do it and you get the job done. And we did, and we got to Langkawi. Sorry for interrupting, but while I've got you here, if you like what we do and you want to support us and become a Patreon or join us on FTP Mates or even drop a quid in the rum fund, go to followtheboat.com forward slash pub. Of course, come to the pub. So eventually we got to Langkawi and, well, the rest, of course, you can watch on our YouTube channel because, well... It was uh, shortly after then we started our refit and that was the beginning of all of our videos. So up until that point, we do have a few clips. And in fact, we do have one clip I recorded uh, of that Indian Ocean crossing, which was me on the foredeck looking back at you in the cockpit. It's somewhere on our YouTube channel in the dim and distant past. It's a great clip because it does give you a very good perspective of what those waves were like and how big they were. Um, and I have to say, I don't think we've done as long a passage since in that, those kind of conditions. Um, we, I think the advantage of cruising around Asia with so many options is that they're much shorter distances. And so you can pick your time, you know, when you do. But those... we have had, 
We've had some pretty nasty weather here as well, but as you say, not for 12 days in a row. Well, uh, and I would say actually the, some of the worst experiences we've had at sea have been off the coast and at anchor. Uh, they've definitely been in Asia with some of these horrendous squalls that you get coming through, uh, <clears throat> which are completely unpredictable. At least when we crossed the Indian Ocean, we knew what we were going to be contending with. So there was an element of planning, apart from all the things that went wrong. But yeah, some of the worst stories, I would say, some of the most stressful times have been uh, being in local areas off, off the coast of, yeah. Yes, I mean, the South China Sea going across to uh, Borneo, going from, you know, from Anam or Anambas or somewhere around there, the South China Sea can be pretty nasty. And that's where you get uh, the water spouts and things, which are, are a little bit scary to be looking at when you're on a boat and quite big choppy waves and big, big winds. Yeah, we've had 60 knot winds and whatnot around here. But anyway, so we were gonna talk about the places we've been and we've, we've brought you from Turkey through the Red Sea, Arabian Sea, round India, Maldives. Couldn't get to South Africa, it was too late, it was all wrong. So we came this way, had no intention of coming here. And I think now everybody must realize by now how much we love Southeast Asia. Because we got here in at the end, towards the end of 2013, and in 2014 we started our refit in Thailand. After doing a lot of uh, research, we found a place we wanted to do our refit. We spent a year kind of rebuilding Esper, didn't we? Yep, yep. Well, you can see all of that in 52 yeah. episodes, I think. Yes, <laughs> yes. And after we rebuilt her, we got her back out, this beautiful boat. She looked so, looked so stunning and, and did really well. Uh, we have been, since 2015, doing nothing but sailing in Thailand, Malaysia, Indonesia. And that includes Borneo and all the islands and Sumatra and all these places. And we still, I would say, have only scratched the surface of this beautiful part of the world. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, absolutely. And I, and I would say during that period from India onwards, there have been two major events, at least, that have dictated our cruising plans, the first being in Maldives, and of course, the second one post-COVID, not being able to go north to the Philippines uh, and going south instead, uh, which really just proves the point that a sailor's plans are written in the sand. Now, of course, if we were absolutely adamant on doing a circumnavigation we would have left by now we would have gone across back across the indian ocean and, or, or wherever but that's that isn't us that and that's not what we're about really and as you say because southeast asia is so vast and a lot of it underdeveloped from a cruising point of view as well which can be a challenge but does also mean that you don't have the congestion of yachts that you do get in the Caribbean. Of course, you can't really compare the Caribbean to Southeast Asia. They are two completely different places. Uh, but I think it's something that we do like about Southeast Asia is the kind of some of the remote locations that you that you can get to. Can be a little bit scary and can fill you with a bit of apprehension, but at the same time, you know, some of these places, to us at least, they feel quite uncharted, don't they? They do. Um, sure, I mean, places like Thailand, there's lots of islands there that have a reasonable amount of yachts sailing around over there. But as you move away from Thailand towards Malaysia and certainly to Indonesia, most of Indonesia, apart from where we are right now, kind of Bali and Lombok, there is quite a few boats coming through. But most of it, we're the only boat there uh, for week 
it's months on end. We never see another boat. Now that suits us. We, we understand that other yachties do like to sail together and spend time uh, with, with cruisers and that's fine and we like that too. But we like to seek out the more unusual places and this part of the world, gosh, it's really good for that. Mm. Okay, well, I think uh, that just about wraps things up. As I said, we haven't talked about our cruising around this part of the world because it is all in our videos. So do go and check out some, some, some of the random videos, uh, but definitely go and check out our latest episode because that I just, I just think is just wonderful. So many, so many still photography, photography pictures, drone shots that give you an idea of what, what we're talking about and why we love the Sunda Islands, which is where we're based at the moment. Yeah. Okay. I think that's it for now. I've got the moth going off full volume over here. Not sure whether you're going to be picking it up. <laughs> and the dogs have had a little bark. They want to have a walk. So I'll say goodbye now to you and to everybody else. And you, I will be meeting on Thursday. Can't wait. Look forward to it. Yeah. Take a, take a care. Peace and fair winds, everyone. Bye.